Dr. Arvind Prasad has a PhD in material science from uh, University of Alberta, Canada. He's a research fellow at University of Queensland, Australia. His uh, interest lies in the study of Indian's history, India's history, in particular, the darshans of India, their role in shaping the Indian society, and India's contribution to the world, which he does in his spare time. Apart from the current paper in Swadeshi Indology, he has also uh, performed a comparative study of fundamental arithmetic operations contained in early Indian mathematics and in Vedic mathematics of uh, Shankaracharya Shri Bharati Krishna Tithaji. He has presented his maths-related works at the World Sanskrit Conference in Bangkok 2015 and Vedic Math Con Conference in Kolkata in 2016. It was quite exciting. When I first wrote this paper, it turned out to be quite big. And it's exciting to be here and it's an honor to be presenting in front of eminent scholars here. Um, I've taken a, it, it's about Sanskrit cosmopolis, it's on chronology of Sanskrit cosmopolis. But the approach I've taken is slightly different and it, there will be a lot of keywords that Manokna and, uh, uh, and Meg just uh, talked about. So there will be words like uh, uh, oppression and uh, role of Buddhism, uh, the Sanskrit cosmopolis. Uh, so keep that in mind as I'm, I'm going through my presentation. It's a preliminary piece of work because I've spent last six months or so. Uh, there's obviously a lot more that needs to be done. Um, I'll present this in two parts. The first part is the hypothesis of, of Pollock. Uh, you know, Manogna and uh, Meg, they gave a wonderful display of you know, the inconsistencies. But I am taking a different point of view. I am talking about the hypothesis that uh, founds the basis for Pollock's works. And then I am trying to answer those hypotheses in terms of what the traditional scholars tell us. Does, is there a match between the two, between what he's saying and what the traditional scholars say? So my analysis is going to be beyond the Sanskrit cosmopolis. So I'll, I'll walk you through my approach as, as we go along. So obviously Pollock is trying to recreate uh, a picture of India and he paints a pretty gloomy picture of India. And my paper is based on, on three three papers that I've read of his. The Sanskrit Post Cosmopolis from 1996, India in the Vernacular Millennium, uh, 300 to 1200 uh, CE, and the death of Sanskrit. And the entire summary of those three papers, this is my summary, is the perfection and the subsequent aesthetic appeal of Sanskrit language was deliberately developed by scholars, which is the Brahmins and Pandits, for the purpose of colonizing other regions at the behest of the Hindu kings. This is my uh, take on what, what he's saying. The successful colonization attempts were carried out solely by using the power of the language, which is Sanskrit, and the consequent Sanskrit cosmopolis. So what I'm saying is that he has used Sanskrit as a political tool. I mean, Pollock's, that's Pollock's views. And what he's saying is that the Brahmins and the kings, they colluded together, and they were successful in creating a Sanskrit cosmopolis. Not by the march of an army or religious crusade. So this is a key point, that he's saying Sanskrit, because it was used as a political language, 
they did not need a crusade uh, or, or a military intervention to colonize. These regions, the, which is the Sanskrit cosmopolis as it, is, uh, it has spread in Southeast Asia, it is oppressed by Sanskrit. These vernaculars then rose against it and they defeated Sanskrit everywhere. I think he's mentioned this word Sanskrit lost everywhere in one of his, uh, in one of his papers. So that's the summary of the three articles that I have read. Now, the, the asserted theory or the asserted, asserted maxim is he creates a narrative and then the facts are presented to fit that narrative. So in terms of, now I'm trying to get into where chronology comes in here. The narrative, which is the cause, is assigned and then the facts are presented to or interpreted to fit the assigned narrative. So there are certain Pollockian claims. So let's see what those claims are. The Hindu kings were power hungry, whose sole aim was to dominate the common populace. That's his hypothesis. There was a Brahmin, you know, the pundits and the king collusion. They came together to run this power machinery. And of course, Sanskrit was developed as a political tool to create a cosmopolis. Now, the, these are foundational hypotheses. So the way I looked at it was if this hypothesis is true, then it does not have a time lag to it, time tag to it. It's beyond time. And because if it is beyond time, then I can look at his hypothesis and check his hypothesis against events that have happened in the last 100, 200 years. And that's what I have done. I mean, I don't really need to say this, but uh, the, the corollary of this asserted maxim is, you know, the naturally balkanized state of India. So what he's saying is, and this is from one of his papers, uh, the Sanskrit Cosmopolis, the point of tracking the historical trajectory along with Sanskrit traveled in the thousand year period is to make social theoretical sense of it. Can we determine the conditions that enable this language to spread with such translocality, that's the word here, translocality, to become the means by which a whole world gave voice to a political vision. So he's basically saying that the Sanskrit cosmopolis was created and before that cosmopolis, the natural state of India was a broken India, balkanized India. All the regions were separate. So that, that's an idea that he is trying to, that's the narrative he's trying to give. Now very quickly, the importance of chronology in social, modern social sciences and also in Pollock's work, is, there are two basic features in it. One is, there is a promise of science. So what I mean by that is, uh, and, and it relates to this cause and effect uh, correlation. So, so if I drop this, it's going to fall. The event is falling. The cause of that is the gravity. The cause has to be present before the event happens. So that's the linearity in the chronology. So that's what the, the promise of science is, and we'll, we'll see whether the promise is met or not. So the cause has to come before the event, and hence dating an event becomes critical. Because you know, to explain an event, you have to find a cause, and the cause has to be before the event. So that's where the chronology comes in. Uh, 
And the popular method is, uh, in, in the social sciences, is you, you take a timeline and you do this cause and event analysis, and which is what uh, was attacked, not attacked, but questioned by Meg and, uh, and Manogna in a very nice way. But uh, I have taken a different approach. What I'm saying, like, like I've said before, is within a given timeline, examine the asserted causes and analyze their truth by studying the events beyond the timeline. So the Pollockian claims about the Hindu and Brahmin kings coming together to oppress or their hunger for power, these, these are the asserted causes. These are, this is the narrative of Pollock. But does it stand the test of time? That's the, that's the question I'm trying to answer. So again, just to look at the cause and effect uh, the cause and event uh, sequence. The Hindu kings and Brahmins were power hungry, that's the maxim. It created a vertical strata in the society, so you have that vertical classification, oppression of Dalits and women, that's an interpreted event. Challenged by Buddhism, that comes next. To counter Buddhism, you have the rise of Sanskrit cosmopolis. And once that happens, you have the vernacular uprising against the Sanskrit cosmopolis, and the vernaculars, they defeat Sanskrit, and the, there is death of Sanskrit. So, so this is the chain of events that he is really trying to, uh, to tell us. That's his, his narrative. This paper challenges the Pollockian ideas contained in the red boxes. So I'm going to challenge three ideas from Pollock. One is the Hindu kings and Brahmins were power hungry, the vernacular uprising, and the death of Sanskrit. These are the three ideas of Pollock that I'm going to challenge. So let's see. Um, now, Pollock has not said these things out of thin air. Thin air. He has act one of the things he has looked at is the epigraphy, uh, the inscriptions. And the facts that he has presented is that the inscriptions are in temples. The narrative he's telling us is that, oh look, it's under the Brahmin control. It's in the temples. Inscription has two parts. So the first part is the prashasti, where the kings are praised, which is written in Sanskrit. And his narrative is, look, there is Brahman and king collusion. They are coming together. The prashasti is, what Pollock is saying, is that the prashasti is being used to elevate the king to a divinely status. The part two is of the inscription is common deeds. So. You know, simple things like, oh, the king gave a piece of land to so-and-so, that's written in the vernacular. And what narrative he is trying to tell us is the Sanskrit domination of the vernaculars, that Sanskrit gives divinity to kings. The language of Sanskrit is used to elevate the king to a divine status, but common things, the daily mundane things are written in vernaculars, so Sanskrit elevates itself. That's his narrative. And language in inscription changes with time. So he has shown uh, a set of inscriptions over a period of time where the, there is a change in the, oops. There is a change in the language. Uh, so there is more and more of the second part in inscriptions. And this is what he's saying is, oh look, the vernacular is uprising. There is a revolt of the vernaculars because there is more and more of the common deeds uh, in the inscriptions. 
And of course, then he talks about the death of Sanskrit, Cosmopolis. Now he is baffled by a few things too. Extent of Prashasti written have befuddled, befuddled many Indologists, not just Pollock. They were French Indologists who were very surprised. Why are there so many Prashastis written? There is no military movement. So he, he, is, he is candid in admitting that I don't, I don't know why there is no, there is no center-periphery relationship. There is no power center. There is no religious movement like you see in Europe, you know, the Crusades. So Pollock is saying we have these unanswered questions and we have the cosmopolis, but how was it created? And he provides a solution to that and that's his ingenuity. He's saying that Sanskrit must have been used as a political language and it's ingenious because it answers all these questions. So the question is, are these narratives true? So let's look at that. So what I did was, I looked at uh, traditional writers, writings of traditional scholars, two of them, Pandit Baldev Upadhyay and Srivart Banwari. Um, Pandit Upadhyay was a very renowned scholar. He was a Padma Bhushan awardee in 1984. And he has written a lot of books, which I'll come to later on. But the book that I read, which provided a lot of answer to his, to Pollock's claims, was in his book called Kashi Ke Panditon Ki Panditi Parampara. It's a 1,200-page book. It's a, it's a very nicely written book, and all it does is give narratives, you know, daily accounts of pandits. Uh, he has given lineage of Kashi pandits, uh, the, the Kashi kings. He has talked about the movement of pandits from Maharashtra to Kashi and from Tamil Nadu to Kashi and so on. So... I've mainly I've used his, that one book of his to respond to the three claims from Pollock, which is the Hindu kings and Brahmins were hungry, power hungry, vernacular uprising against Sanskrit cosmopolis, and death of Sanskrit. So the first one, the question I'm asking is, were the Hindu kings and Brahmins really power hungry? So one of the things that uh, Pandit Upadhyay talks about in that book is the salient features of Kashi Pandits. And it's uh, six or seven pages of description. And the salient features are really very simple. You know, pursuit of knowledge was their prime vocation. And we saw that yesterday in the Vyakyartha Sadas, the Vyakyartha Sadas, where you, you could see the amount of knowledge these guys have. That's their prime vocation. Humility and modesty. They were very humble, and this is not just him saying, not just Upadhyay saying, there is a, a f let me see if I can get his name right. Uh, he's a German free, sorry, I can't remember the name, but it's a German scholar who has actually made a statement that we need to revive Sanskrit, not only because of the knowledge contained therein, but also uh, the humility and modesty of these pundits is a, is a sight to behold. And they used to live a life of great penance and austerity. And one of their daily practices, they had several daily practices, but one of the things was to teach students for free. Of course, uh, they were supported by kings and rich people, not just the kings, rich people as well. But the point is they could become corrupt and, you know, charge 
fees to students even if they were being supported by the kings. But the fact that they kept on teaching students for free uh, is a great sign that they were really about gaining knowledge and disseminating the knowledge. It was not really about power. One of the things which I really would like to uh, state here is they, these pundits, they would go out in the evening for a stroll with their students. And while going out, they would explain little details of how to do a Shastrartha. So they were training the, their students on how to do Shastrartha as well. So that I thought was really interesting. Now there are about 150 uh, Brahmins or Pandits whose lives are uh, explained in that book. I randomly chose four. I'm not going to, it's in the paper, but I'm not going to go through this in details. But suffice to say that all these pundits, they displayed the salient features. You know, they, they were very focused on gaining knowledge. They, they were very humble and modest. They helped the common masses by giving free education. By the, Some of these pundits even knew Ayurveda and they would treat uh, people for free. Um, so I, I won't go through this slide. Uh, so just to summarize, in terms of the, uh, the salient features of the pundits, they, they, you don't see any greed in them. Uh, they, they were very, well, like I said, they were very, they, they, they were, they had a lot of tapasya, they did a lot of tapasya. And one of the things which I did not mention in the previous slide was, there was one, well, two or three of them which I looked at, uh, they, these pandits, they went across from Kashi to, to Maharashtra, to, to Punjab, to Gujarat. They would meet another pandit from Tamil Nadu. So what the picture that emerges is these pandits, they were moving across all of India very freely. So the whole idea of the vernaculars uprising against Sanskrit doesn't seem to hold true. And so, well, well, we'll look at that in a little more details. Um, I'll, I'll skip this. It's basically the same that um, I've been saying. The second question I'm asking is, did Sanskrit really die? Now, these traditional scholars and pundits, they wrote a lot of texts. So they were teaching, they would disseminate knowledge, and one of the ways to disseminate knowledge was they would write books and texts. They were writing books in Hindi as well as Sanskrit. So, and this is all happening in 19th century, 20th century. All of this is happening in the 19th and 20th century. So if Sanskrit was dead, surely those pundits wouldn't have been writing in Sanskrit. There was a Sanskrit college run by the British in Calcutta. This is late uh, 19th century, so 1890s or something. Those sons, okay, so it was initiated by the British, but the actual people who were teaching in those colleges were Sanskrit, were the pundits. So, if Sanskrit was dead, there wouldn't have been any pundits to be able to teach Sanskrit in those colleges. So this notion of Sanskrit having been dead, it, it doesn't, doesn't hold at all. And, uh, 
and baldev upadhyay he talks about you know sanskrit pracharak vidwan so devadi is vidwan who would whose sole job was to go around spreading sanskrit this is all happening at the grassroots level uh i have given some names of people who did these kind of work i don't need to go through the, through that in this presentation uh uprising of the vernaculars that's the third question i am asking did the vernaculars really revolt against sanskrit now in the examples that i i mean i mentioned but i did not go through in details i'll give you two or three examples datya swami his name datya is a small town in madhya pradesh and datya swami he grew up in kashi he was educated in kashi he moved from uh from kashi to different regions ended up being in Mahar- in madhya pradesh in datya kavindra chara swarasati very interesting example because uh pollock knows about kavindra chara swarasati he talks about the library that saraswati had but he dismisses it as you know oh it must have been because shah jahan gave him money now kavindra chara saraswati story is interesting because he was the top scholar during the time of shah jahan shah jahan had imposed a pilgrimage tax on the hindu pilgrims and uh kavindra chara saraswati he walked 600 kilometers from kashi to agra just to plead the case against this pilgrimage tax and he was so forceful that shah jahan agreed and he removed the tax and he was so impressed with uh, kavindra chara's scholarship that he started giving giving him 2000 rupees a month and pollock has made a statement saying oh his library would have been because he used the money from shah jahan but what baldevan and what baldev upadhyay clearly says is he gave kavindra chara swarasati gave up every single rupee that he had to the poor in the along the banks of ganga so clearly he was not using the donation money for the library so another nice example of how pollock makes a statement but the basis is not there he's just made a statement a couple of other examples you know raja bhoj of ujjain helped rebuild the dwarka and rani ahilya who was not from kashi helped the king of kashi to rebuild the kashi vishwanath temple so again there is synergy between different vernaculars i don't see how the you know vernaculars were revolting against sanskrit i'll skip this uh, so there were few things which i thought they were errors in pollock's analysis one is prashasti writing with my little bit of work on on the mathematics i know the prashasti has been written amongst indian mathematicians as well so it's not just the brahmins writing prashasti for the kings the other thing that came out of baldev upadhyay's book is that prashastis were written for duke of edinburgh and queen of victoria and the dutch kings as well so it was not just the hindu kings they were writing prashastis for so the point i am trying to make it make is that it was not a tool to elevate the kings to a divinely status writing prashasti prashasti was written to honor and respect a person with some accomplishment the second point is what it's called the file drawer problem which uh no the previous presentation came out very nicely is uh you have a hypothesis you collect the data 
whatever data suits you, you present that. Whatever data does not suit you, you put it in the file drawer. That's why it's called a file drawer problem. And it's true, actually. It's actually true. And so what that tells us is that you have to look at what Pollock is not writing. Probably that is more important. What is he omitting from his analysis? And like I gave you the example of Kavindrachar Sorasati 600 kilometer walk and the donation from Mughal Emperor, he has not talked about those at all. So the question really is the promise of science, where is the science? Where is the rigor in the analysis? And the Sanskrit and vernacular tussle, they were pundits who were from Tamil Nadu and Andhra and Karnataka. They would teach in Sanskrit and Hindi in the school, but at home they would speak their vernacular language. So it was not as if you know they were fighting against each other and Sanskrit, they thought Sanskrit to be an oppressive tool. So I just quickly want to tell the traditional view what Baldev Upadhyaya has talked about what India was. What was the picture of India, what has been the basis of, of Indian society from a traditional point of view? Bharat has been a tapovan of tyaga and tapas. And the sole aim has been to, to maintain a land of tyaga and tapas. That tapovan is a place where people can pursue knowledge. That's the traditional view. And because I've run out of time, I'm just going to mention this, that if you apply this as a philosophy, you can explain all the events that you see you know, the, uh, the movement of Sanskrit across different places, uh, the pundits helping the, uh, yeah, the, the students for free, the kings helping the pundits, all of these can be explained by this traditional point of view that India has been a place of tyag and tapas in pursuit of knowledge. Just one last thing. Uh, Okay, I'll, I'll quickly end here by saying, given that Pollock's analysis has been inconsistent, it is important, as a way forward, it is important that we give a lot of attention to our traditional scholars. In my personal experience in the last day and a half, I've realized that the scholars who are in, steeped in the tradition, their responses have been really good. And as a way forward, I think we need to uh, do serious scholarship reading the traditional scholars to understand what India has been and where we would like to take India forward. So with that, I'll, I'll stop and I'll take any questions. I think uh, you forgot, and as well as Pollock, uh, to talk about traditions in Mithila, uh, where in fact we see a fine synergy between uh, um, Sanskrit and, and vernacular. The mm. finest example is Vidyapati himself, mm. the one who, despite knowing uh, I think excellent Sanskrit, Desil Bana Sabjan Mitha, he starts writing extensively in Mathili uh, mm. for the, you know, so that Jan uh, Unmukhi, uh, in fact, uh, ex experiment of Vidyapati is, is, mm. is something which, which tells us that always the vernacular and Sanskrit is not juxtaposed to each other. This is what I think you said. Another point which I would like to make, uh, that uh, Shankar taking a case from, again from Mithila, uh, Shankar Mishra and Ayachi Mishra. Mm. Uh, in fact, if we look at their life histories, 
the kind of uh, uh, stiff opposition which they had offered to the king you know to the to the contemporary uh, dispensation yeah. is something you know uh, really uh, remarkable in a sense that where uh, uh, the king is is basically drawn into a conflict where he gives shankar mist a, a, a very uh, uh, expensive uh, in fact uh, some some kind of jewelry mm. which ayache uh, mystery is is wondering that what would he do with his jewelry and uh, then the you know uh, ultimately it goes to a woman who is a chaman by caste what we call you know the the woman who uh, aids us in in giving birth and there is a fine fine story of how this chum, uh, this this woman also abdicates that wealth mm. because she thinks that all her skill would would go west if she basically engages in that wealth so anti market mechanism and this collusion between the brahmin class and um, in fact uh, kings the mm. the kshatriya and and brahmin is in fact has lot of fissures if you look look at several stories look at story of uh, mithila again again alika yeah, sure. uh, in fact darshan the out of six astic darshans four uh, are from mithila mm. look at the way people are are trained there by by their gurus minimum of expenses they mm. are not charged at all yeah. and these nyay uh mimansa uh, in fact four of four of the darshans flourished in mithila without any aid uh, not only from the kings also uh, with uh, i think a severe austerity and yep. extreme renunciation mm-hmm. um, yes. by all these brahmin pandits and which only got exhausted i, I think ganganaja writes till 1910 mm-hmm. we had uh, 1100 uh, mimansaks in in mithila so i think uh, british uh, as as if we uh, if we are talking of chronology mm. you know the colony had had a massive role to play i do not know whether pollock talks about that or not why did mithila he, he dismisses i mean he doesn't talk about the influence of like he avoids talking about the influence of muslims and british in in the disruption no because so. till 1910 we had mimansaks talks about it it says you Sorry. Regarding Muslims, he is very clear in the death of Sanskrit. He says that it is absolutely false to attribute yes, any responsibility true, true. to them. Yes, yes. And he yes, goes on yes, saying yes. that some of the Muslims actually tried to help yes, revive yes, Sanskrit, but the yeah, Hindus yeah. did not want to cooperate. Yeah, yeah. he is talking about King Harsha and yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yes, yeah, to, yeah, so just to respond to your comments, Baldev uh, Upadhyay has only talked about the Kashi Pandits. So my because I have only read that book, my responses are only about Kashi, but. I think the general picture that I got was, you know, it would have been the same in other parts of India as well. You know, the it has been a, a seat of four. I mean, out of six Astic uh, darshans, four grew in Mithila, and it is always being omitted by whosoever. I, I would not like to name. Mm-hmm. So that's actually, you know, it it keeps wondering me that why is there a, there a conscious attempt not to study uh, those uh, darshans which were flourishing in Mithila, and it, it, it you know, it's, it's today, it's nowhere. Recently, we were trying trying to read Nyai, the tradition of Nyai and Nabi Nyai through uh, vernacular proverbs. We had, you know, something in our mind that how does does it survive? Uh, uh, so, in fact, to look into the survival and existence of those Nyai traditions, mm. we were trying to look look into proverbs and several vernacular traditions. In fact, uh, there was no support at all from from no murmur. In fact, one of the guy I would not name. in the sure. office i mean uh, he asked me that what is the validity of nyai yeah so these are the questions which you face yes yes absolutely yes. i mean like i said in the beginning this was a preliminary study I've, there's lot more to to study and answer these questions and uh, yeah so 
Yes. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I'm just going to play devil's advocate on your own data. Sure. Okay. So you say that uh, Brahmins and other people uh, led this life of renunciation, sacrifice, and so on. Mm. But in your own data, you have the instance of Peshwas, who are Brahmins who would be king. Right? Mm. So, you know, how dominant is this theme versus that theme? How dominant? Uh, the, I mean, the, the general idea was that the kings would support the, the Brahmins for their studies. And those support would come not only from the Kashi kings, but also from Nepal or Peshwa in, 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 in your question. So I've not looked at, you know, the numbers in terms of, you know, how many kings supported and how many. So no, I have not looked at data, but yeah. Sure. There is, I think, plenty of data from 1820. From 1822 to 38, actually, which uh, Dharampalji has collated from British archives, which shows the, uh, the like about 45 to 85 percent, depending on which district and which part of India you're looking at, where students actually studying in Hindu schools often held in Brahmins' houses and temples, which were all like actually Shudras and castes below. So, I mean, I think that is an ex extraordinary. It covers like more than 50 percent of the population. To help me, you can do two things. You can go to the subscribe button on my YouTube and subscribe. We need more subscribers there. Uh, secondly, I get lots of emails on people saying, how do we donate? How can we help you? Uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com and you can hit the donate button. You can donate in dollars. There are different ways mentioned. If you want to donate in rupees, there is a column called uh, Infinity Foundation India and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in India.